0: start with a rousing chant of Save Our Library!" Save, Save Our library! Save Our library!
1: July 12, 2013. That's Bill de Blasio. He's tall, and like all politicians in an election race, he seems full of conviction.
0: We as New Yorkers, we believe in public space.
1: He's standing on the steps of the New York Public Library's main branch, and he's leading activists in a protest against the Central Library Plan, which threatens to spend $300 million to demolish two vital libraries in the city.
0: The current plan to renovate the Central Library and to sell off the Mid-Manhattan Library and the Science, Industry, and Business Library is literally half-baked. This is a plan that has not been sufficiently thought through that the ramifications of which have not been fully explored, the costs of which have not been fully explored, and yet there's a rush to try and move it through.
1: Critics of the central library plan have pointed out that the main branch doesn't have room for all these books. It's a bit like trying to cram several gallons of toothpaste into a small tube. The plan not only sacrifices vital public property, but it will place serious restrictions on the library's infrastructure.
0: There hasn't been enough thought given, for the ramifications of this plan, and there clearly has not been enough thought given to the fact that we could see very serious cost overruns.
1: Bill de Blasio, then in his role as public advocate, pledged his support.
0: Today, I'm calling on the city to halt all plans to sell the two Manhattan libraries until a thorough and independent assessment is complete. And I've sent this letter
1: Four months later, Bill de Blasio would be elected mayor of New York City in a landslide, yet since he took office in January, Mayor de Blasio has said and done nothing to follow up on his July remarks. He's too busy cracking down on jaywalkers, trying to understand how to work with Albany, and making a horse carriage ban the first of his serious priorities.
2: Tell the mayor that it's time to bring back the books, that we need to save the stacks, that 150
1: million taxpayer dollars can be put to much better use in all the branches. On March 12, 2014, De Blasio's continued inaction on the Central Library plan caused protesters led by the Committee to Save the New York Public Library to gather on the steps of the main branch in the pouring rain. Mayor De Blasio did not show up, but a cardboard likeness of him did. Members of the committee informed me that De Blasio had not returned their calls.
3: Very late. We've never been afraid to help you
4: find the books you need.
1: These are the voices of the raging grannies. They've come down to the main branch, armed with a fistful of library songs. That's my Sunday afternoon place. Oh, wow. So now they're encroaching upon your Sunday afternoons. I don't want to sell it. Why? Rich people have enough. They have a hole in their heart. If they have a billion, they want a trillion. If you give them a trillion, they want quadrillion. They are just greedy. The committee's campaign received a shot in the arm when a man named Matthew Zydrozny was photographed eating chicken on the library steps by the popular blog The Humans of New York. The photo went viral, as photos of beefcakes eating chicken often do. As it turns out, Zadrozny was at the protest. I asked him what he thought of de Blasio's silence. Mayor de Blasio has remained silent, so are these protests doing any good?
3: Mayor de Blasio, as public advocate, came out criticizing the plan. As mayor, it's true he's remained silent. We're still waiting to hear from him, but uh, we're hopeful. Why are you hopeful? We're hopeful because he took a stand as public advocate, and we believe that he understands the impact that this would have on the city and on local communities. Is it
1: possible, though, that the committee was kind of used in a political gesture rather than an actual
3: act of true political movement? Uh, we don't think so. Why? Because we believe that the mayor understands that this is, in many respects, an issue of equality of opportunity. We believe the mayor understands that if the mid Manhattan and the science, industry, and business libraries close, the amount of space in the system will be reduced. We believe that the mayor understands that if Mid-Manhattan closes, there will be less space for students in the CUNY system to study. Uh, We believe that the mayor understands that this is bad for New Yorkers. Is it
1: possible, though, that the mayor has changed his mind?
3: We'll find out.
1: My name is Edward Champion, and this is the Bat Segundo Show. We'll be following developments in the New York Public Library Showdown and reporting it on future shows. To get involved with the campaign, you can visit savenypl.org. Our guest for this program is Dorde Norris author of Karate Chop. But before we get to Dorne, let's turn to Blake Bailey, the noted literary biographer who has appeared on two of our previous shows. Last December, I met Blake to discuss the legacy of Charles Jackson. We were the only two living people in America who had read all of the man's work. Now, Blake has a new memoir called The Splendid Things We Planned. I happened to read Blake's memoir when it was available in Galley. And when I talked with him, I asked him about the challenges of switching from literary biography to memoir. So I happen to have read your memoir, which is coming out next year, The Splendid Things We Planned, uh, which I managed to get through the good people at Norton. What is interesting about this book, and we won't talk about it too much, maybe we'll talk about it later, but um, in a a, a third appearance or whatever, but this book isn't so much about you, it's about your brother Scott, Mm -hmm. Um, and it was also extremely odd to read a Blake Bailey book with Blake Bailey as one of the characters that also was not heavily
2: sourced. I mean, there's no notes. Uh, it's just, it's a memoir it's format. It's a memoir. It's subjective. It's entirely different mode. And a tough one for me.
1: Yeah, but I, I, and I, I realize that, but I have to ask, there were a few parts of this memoir. The uh, acrimonious relationship with your stepmother over the brick <laughs> path. Uh, the trouble you had with your vice principal brother Howie, where you didn't entirely point out to how your own personality may have actually contributed to these particular conflicts. And I'm wondering, you know, did you
2: try tracking down Brother Howie to get his side of the story? (laughs) I mean, did you... Brother Howie's side of the story is not the point. Again, I Uh mean, uh, memoirs are inherently subjective. Um, It's it's how... I perceive Scott and Howie and my my stepmonster and, um, and, and, you know, and, and how we all as a family survived the Armageddon of having a, a person like Scott in the immediate family. Um, I, everyone tells me, I don't know about you, Ed, I, I'm certainly interested to hear. Uh, everyone tells me that I'm very hard on myself in this book. I mean, I'm kind of this fuck up and loser, um, which I was. Um and you know who skirted with alcoholism um, yeah. and and so forth so I I don't think I go easy on myself I point out the fact I, these are the very words that I was lazy and self involved and in that that got my step monsters uh, goat um so so well, I don't think I really <laughs> I, uh, I I don't think I really let myself off the hook um, in fact again some of my uh, friends who have read this say, you know, a major problem with this is that you don't give the whole picture. You weren't this uh, total loser and and failure up to a certain point in your life. You know, you had redeeming qualities. And... I say, well, that's the story I, I, I chose to tell. So
1: I guess because you're placing yourself, obviously, as the hero of your own story, even though you do point out, yes, that you went through a fifth
2: every three days or whatnot. I'm not the hero of the story, yeah. but I'm the I'm you know I'm the the point of view character. Yeah. Well, you're yeah. the point
1: of view character, but right. because you were writing about yourself, I mean, you know, how can you be? Sufficiently critical Or is this just something You just take you, you knew it was going To be a memoir format You knew it wasn't going To be uh, a sort of Rigorous investigation It was just I mean I mean at least On, on a sort of Factual basis And on a sort of the, What you've done With the previous books It's certainly a rigorous Emotional investigation But you know I mean what do you do To, to, to I guess switch horses like this to, to really it was, be fair. It was, it
2: was brutal. It was brutal. I write in my acknowledgments that I worked on this for about 11 yeah, years. Yeah, I know that. And, uh, you know, as my editors will tell you on my three literary biographies, which are cinder blocks, um, the, the, the the published work was very close to the submitted manuscript. I mean, only very light editing was required. That is uh, a genre that comes more easily to me there's nothing easy about researching and writing literary biographies but you know to, to see a life objectively to know what matters to know which themes you know predominate over others and so on it is very easy for me to put that in a comprehensible narrative structure subjectivity is a great muddler okay um Again and again, the editor would say, We need more emphasis on this to balance. We cannot have this relentless, uh, you know, downer stuff about your crazy brother. Um, you know, what about your father? Yeah. What about your mother? What about you? You know, and so I was constantly rejiggering it, constantly adding stuff, taking stuff out, um, it, working with the structure. I mean, I don't know whether this succeeds or not, frankly. I, I think it's a pretty jumpy... I, I think it's a pretty breezy read. But... Um, and it's it's short. It has the virtue of being short. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, all I know is I gave it my best shot. <laughs> you
1: know? But, I mean, you know, it is interesting that Blake, in this book, uh, actually, he's very uh, prominent in the, probably the first part, and then he just gradually disappears as Scott actually becomes more of a character, I guess. And, that, and, I, and I'm wondering about that. I mean, it's like... You're inevitably going to have to have some introspection, but uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, are you terrified of examining yourself, or <laughs> you know, I mean, you're certainly comfortable with yourself. That's that's without question. But you know,
2: no, there there is. A, I mean, again, I, I I think that I'm pretty hard on myself, but uh, but but I wasn't the whole point here. I mean, the whole point was. How, how did my father come out of this? How did my mother eventually cope with this? Um, you know, it, it, it culminates in that climactic yeah. Christmas where, I mean, Scott is is totally unbalanced and, and without giving it away, and, there are very
1: hard decisions that are made. Yeah.
2: Yes, and we well, we go out and we buy a gun and we sic the police on him, and and I like to think it's highly dramatic, but also kind of funny. Um, after that, Scott uh, spends a lot of time in prison, so he is sort of off stage and we s- simply talk about, uh, you know, the, the, the aftermath, the fallout in all of our lives. How, how did we ga- gain equilibrium after the Holocaust of, uh, of Scott? So, you know, again, I don't think he takes over the story. I mean, you're a more objective reader than I am, but, um, you know, I mean... Uh, well, no, I, I didn't mean yeah. to suggest he takes over the story, but that...
1: As you start to wane in the story, right. he starts to rise, and then you kind of come back near then the I end. Then I come yeah. back, yeah. yeah. yeah.
2: Um, I mean, I wanted to discuss the fact that um, I was a lot like Scott, yeah. um, both both for better and for worse. We have a very similar sense of humor. There, there are, Your things.
1: family's terrible with cars,
2: by the way. <laughs> terrible with cars. <laughs> yeah. a, the cover is a flaming yeah. uh, flaming car. Scott cracked up cars. I cracked up cars. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I write there at the very end of the book that after Scott died, I never dreamed about him, ever, which was always very strange, and neither neither did my mother, who had this very odd symbiotic relationship with Scott. Um, but whenever I would laugh at something sort of odd that no one else would laugh at, Scott would occur to me, because I know that Scott would have laughed at it, too. I mean, we, we were very much on the same same wavelength, and we were both self-destructive. But Scott, you know, was the New York Yankees to my, you know, single-A farm team in that respect. Um, and eventually, I met this person um, who, you know, was was on a more even keel than I was and who did appreciate my finer qualities, and that made all the difference. And so my life, which had been sort of following this this ominous tangent— Became what? Well, what I am today, our our our, our most beloved <laughs> literary biographer. I'm kidding, of course. But um, where as Scott went down the toilet, where he was arguably always destined to go, but I I might have gone there too. Um, but this is a lie This is a story about the 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 the, the odd. Um, the odd things that happen in, in, in lives that, uh, that that save us and make us go in a different direction.
1: To listen to the full 73-minute conversation with Blake Bailey, go to our website at www.batsegundo.com www.batsegundo, and find show number five thirty. A few weeks ago, on show number 536, we featured a segment with Chad Post, who set off a small controversy when he complained about small publishers of translated literature being exploited by agents on the make. So when I learned that Dordé Nors, the Danish author of the short story collection Karate Chop, happened to be in New York, well, I felt compelled to do my bit for translated literature. The stories were quite unusual. An entire tale about how people interpret a four-pound tomato, a man looking up serial killers on the internet, dogs sniffing body parts, bureaucrats who go insane. What was it about the Danish temperament that inspired such poetic fiction? Okay, so I'm here with Dorde Nors, who's most recently the author, actually, <laughs> the author of several books, but the one that's translated into English, Karate Chop. Dorde, how are you doing?
4: I'm doing fine. A little cold, but uh, fine. Yes, I know. We're yeah. we're
1: suffering here, but they're really suffering in Atlanta right now. <laughs>
4: yeah, poor, yeah. poor yeah. people.
1: But uh, you come from Denmark, so this is like, you know, nothing.
4: <laughs> no, we can get cold winters there, but yeah. they're mostly moist and wet and sad. Uh, Yeah, okay.
1: (laughs) Uh, Hopefully, uh, well, that's a somber note to start on.
4: (laughs) Yeah, it's gray when it's winter in Denmark.
1: So I want to talk about the, uh, the economy of these stories, which is fascinating. I mean, you have to pay very close attention to learn the details and to learn some very... Uh, Interesting twist Or some human revelation In these stories So this leads me to ask Just to start off here I'm wondering how long It takes for you To write one Or to conceive one I mean Is there a lot of planning That goes into Ha ha I'll have the twist At this point Or I mean What's the level Of intuition Versus the level Of uh, just really Getting it down And burying All the details Like this
4: I don't plan writing Oh I kind of It happens Or I get an idea Or I see something Or there's a, a line Or a passage That I write down and sometimes it just lies there for a while then like a couple of days later I would write another passage perhaps for another story and then sometimes I put them together and they start doing some things for each other but I write them pretty fast when the idea and the flow and the voice and the characters are there I just go into the zone and it kind of feels like I'm singing these it's like you, you find the voice for a story and then You just stick to it and write it. It doesn't take that long. Seven of these stories were actually written in a cottage off the West Coast in Denmark. Two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. For seven of the stories. Seven of the stories. Wow. So, and then I would take long walks, and then would go home. Boof, there was a story. So the writing process with this one was not that.
1: That's like the Beatles writing the lyrics for a "Hard Days Night" on the back of a of a matchbox in like ten yeah, minutes. Well, then yeah. It,
4: when it happens, it happens, right?
1: Well, to what do you attribute these incredible sort of like subconscious and, and these little details? I mean, is, I mean. Are those details just coming from your subconscious and, and they're just naturally springing, or I mean, do they are they are they discovered in the revision? At all? I
4: think they come from training. Yeah, because uh, it has something to do with with uh, the neck of the woods that I come from, Scandinavia. Yeah, I was trained in, in Swedish literature. That was what I studied at university, and the Swede the Swedes have this very bold and courageous, brave way of looking at existence, and it turns big on them and they look at the darkness and the pits of of distress and everything. And then if you take that richness of existentialism, you might even call it, and pair it up with the Danish tradition, which is precision, accuracy, Danish design, cut to the core, don't babble on forever. Uh, if you sort of combine these two, you get short shorts with a huge content that's sort of Is laying in there like an elephant in a container and moving around all the time, and this style came from training. It came from uh, reading a lot and writing a lot. Suddenly, I think I found my voice in these stories. I think this is this was a breakthrough for me in Denmark also um, that I found out how I can combine the danish and the swedish tradition Hmm.
1: so by training i mean how much writing did you have to do before you could just get this remarkable approach to find the elephant to tackle existence Mm. like this
4: well i started writing at eight (laughs) so and this book was written when i was 36 so, but you didn't co- have
1: the Danish masters and the Swedish masters staring over you at eight, did no,
4: you? No, <laughs> but I had the a, the Danish song tradition. Uh-huh. Uh, we have a book in Denmark called "Hoskule Sangboon. You'll never learn how to say that, but it's a it's a it's a songbook. <laughs> she that... says
1: confidently, <laughs> "You never
0: know." I might you deliver You want to try?
4: <laughs> uh, but that songbook is a. Uh, The rural uh, part of Denmark where I come from, all the farmers, they would use that songbook a lot. And there were no literature in my household. It was uh, middle class uh, carpenter and hairdresser. Uh, But this book was there. And what I learned from that was that these songs that were written by great Danish poets and then put into music, they would be so precise. I loved that book. I, I sang these songs. I read these poems. I... And then later on, there was my brother's uh, vinyl covers. You know, it was uh, Lennon Cohen, it was all these guys that he had up in his room, and I could read. And a lot of the training came from that.
1: Huh.
4: And then so- later on, university, of course, and the boring part of yeah. the, the, <laughs> the training. The analytical
1: stuff. Well, that, that makes total sense because, I mean, there is a, a def- definitive metric. To these particular stories, uh, you mentioned that they were akin to singing, and I'm wondering, you know, how has how have you become? more equated with this kind of musicality as the stories have have, uh, continued. And also, I mean, how does this work in terms of your novels, which are not translated? There are five of them, and and those are obviously a lot larger than a short story. So how does the musicality and that concise mode work with the novels as well?
4: Well, I think my first novel was extremely influenced by a Swedish writer called Kerstin Ekman, who I wrote my thesis on, and it was so influenced by her that I kind of shun away from it because I don't want to sound like her anymore, right? And then, at my third book, I started to find that the voice that sort of blooms in Karate Chop, and there's a breakaway there, and and it's like a break in my writing. I write a, a Karate Chop. It, it is. It really is yeah. because the first three of my novels were like classic structures. They had plots and peaks, and and then this whole s- Swedish abyss of existentialism and darkness but then with this one i broke away and the next two novels i wrote are short novels and they're very they're more experimental in a form and they're very close to the whole idea of accuracy and that a line at a sentence has to be so precise and it has to sing and it has to have voice and it has to be just so accurate that, that that's a sheer joy for me to actually be able to write a sentence and then know people will get this. But
1: you, this is extraordinary because if you're writing a short story so quickly and it's not singing, what do you do? I, I mean, you know, certainly I, I presume that you will eventually uh, it will eventually sing in this uh, mode that you wanted to. But that's 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 a remarkable speed there. So how do you how do you keep the voice purring? <laughs>
4: Well, actually, I do a lot of reading out aloud. Yeah. Uh, while I do it, and the rhythm has to be good when I read it aloud myself. I talk a lot. I walk a lot. And um, and actually, there is. I think literature like this has a lot to do with listening, and to how the words sounds and and how they work together. But that's an intuitive thing. Uh, it, you can't sort of use. Uh, there's no math in this. Um, either you can carry a tune or you can't, perhaps, right? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's just something instinctive, I think.
1: I'm curious to know about the tension between the Swedish existential dread and angst and uh, (laughs) the Danish identity. You touched upon this a little bit. I saw your little Atlantic soliloquy about Bergman Mm -hmm. um, and how you looked to him as a way of, living kind of a tranquil life and not living a wild life which gets in the way of uh well gets in the way of living quite frankly i mean you know i'm wondering you know what what do you do to to live or draw upon experience or to move into uncomfortable areas or is your imagination stronger than that to that you don't really need the life experience your imagination in combination with the singing that we're identifying here is is, uh, is enough to live a sort of tranquil life or, or, or what? And, and also, uh, I was hoping you could probably talk about the tension between the Swedish and Danish feelings and all that.
4: Yeah, first of all... I try to live my life as any other human being. Just, I just really try not to be destructive about it. I'm uh, 43. I'm not afraid to tell you how old I am. So I've tried a lot in my life, and some, a lot of it has been dramatic, and it has been filled with emotions and breakups and stuff like that. And of course, I draw on the, the experiences from that. But these days, I think the discipline is very important. I don't need more drama in my life. I don't know why you should seek up drama. Uh, causing pain in your life, that's an immature thing to do in my age, I think. Just, yeah. uh, you can't avoid it. It's going to happen anyway. People you love will pass away. Your cat will be hit by a car, stuff like that. You know. You don't have to seek it out. It's, it's coming to you.
1: But, I mean, I'm wondering if that impulse isn't necessarily uh, a writerly impulse, but just a human impulse. Because we get close to 40, we start to say, well, do we really want to live this way? Our choices sometimes become a little bit more limited. Our responsibilities are greater. Mm -hmm. Uh, We now have a duty to other people. And so, you know, is that really a writerly thing? I mean, is the writer doomed in some sense to almost be a child to some degree?
4: I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it's necessarily a writer thing. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, a, a time in your life where you, you think that, or, or you go haywire and you go right into the abyss, right? Yeah. But Ingmar Bergman was around 47 when this happened for him because he lived a pretty crazy life, having children all over the place and women and, and pretty destructive.
1: Locking Liv men up.
4: <laughs> no, just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Being very chaotic. Uh, emotionally cha- chaotic life and then around this age he took this path also of not living like a monk because he certainly didn't but he was just very structured and disciplined and i enjoy that it sounds boring to people but i really enjoy it don't need more drama in my life well it's
1: it's really a variation of the flow bur maxim you know live a, be calm and orderly in your life and violent and original in your work yeah um so let's let's actually talk about the work i I really want to get into it Uh, i was fascinated by many of the human animal connections uh throughout these stories ranging from the dog murdering pledge in mutual destruction there's the dog talk in hair salon there's the apes who are starving in female killers the golden retriever with a secret urge to roll around in carcasses and the heron uh this is Absolutely fascinating. And I'm only scratching the surface of this because animals are, I think, just about every story here. Yeah, they're
4: cats beating up dogs.
1: (laughs) So I'm wondering, you know, how deep is your interest in animals? Where did this start? Do you think that animals in some sense are almost better revealers of human character than humans?
4: I think they mirror us so well. Yeah. It's like a mirror. Also I grew up in the countryside. There's also a duckling in there that is very of course uh significant. I grew up in the countryside and this is what how we that was what we saw every day it was animals and it was how we related to them and how they were treated around us. I never contemplated very much about why they're there. They're just so cool to have there because you know, sometimes, you know, when a dog is run over by a car or something, people go, they cry and they have emotional outbursts. But when they hear that the kid next door uh, has cut his feet off or something, uh, they go, oh, well, like, it, uh, for some reason, we yeah. connect uh, better emotionally because animals are innocent. So it's, it's a, perhaps it's a way to connect with the innocence in us because The duckling can't help it, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also this tendency to judge people by how they treat their animals. I have found that. I mean, you know, you could see someone who is an absolute. Wonderful person, but if he treats his dog the wrong way, he'll be totally written off. It's fascinating. You just know
4: that there's something wrong going. They people reveal themselves. That's also in mutual destruction. When he's he's actually two friends, and and they're killing each other's dogs when their when their dogs go go get bad, get sick, and suddenly it hits him. God, I've been killing a lot of my friends' dogs lately. What is he doing to them? Right.
1: But it takes several dogs, and 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 yeah. also considering dachshunds in order to uh, finally come to terms with this is a pretty terrible thing. I'm exactly. doing. Exactly. You know yeah. that's that's fascinating. But that's that story is also really interesting because um, because the idea that that fr- friendship is is this intense that it is built upon a pledge that uh, is by any. I mean, by most rational and moral standards, pretty grotesque, is is utterly fascinating. The, the, and there's a lot of um, uh, really kind of creepy relationships within all these stories uh, built built on similar tacit ideas of trust. Um, do you think that's uh that's something that uh, is kind of almost a, a verboten topic to write about in fiction uh, is there anything in Denmark that uh, perhaps the going back to the whole swedish danish thing is there anything about that particular nexus that causes you to um to dwell upon, I guess, the, the truths we share in confidence but that we don't really talk about in public in terms of binding friendship and all that.
4: I would say about the the, the mutual dog killing yeah. is that where I grew up, that was what you did. Yeah. You could not kill your own dog, so you kind of uh, knew a guy in the neighborhood who could do it for you, and you switched dogs, right? Yeah. So, But this also tells you something about relationships. Um, and I don't know if we're... Better at doing it, or, or more interested in, in 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 Scandinavia. I just love to dwell upon it because all the relationships that we have have some sort of gift ex- exchanged that can be very tainted at times, and and suddenly, what should be giving and what should be something you thrive from is turns into something abusive and we never know as human beings when that is happening even you know love relationships everything even with your children sometimes which is the worst to discover that the relationship people have with their kids is also filled with strange deals and gifts Right?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, The Buddhist, I want to talk about this. Uh, For some reason, that spoke to me. I can't imagine (laughs) why. Um, It's this fascinating story of this man who cracks up um, and goes completely crazy with a car. Uh, But there's no actual specific source for his rage. I mean, it could be the divorce. It could be the new job. It could be the wild ideological haze that wraps around his head. We don't really know. We only know that he loves his work or uses this as an excuse to do what he ends up doing in the story. So, you know, this leads me to ask you, I mean, should fiction be in the business of explaining psychological motive or providing a solution for how society deals with someone like the Buddhist? Or do you feel that the understanding of human behavior is better uh, centered around this idea of inhabiting the interior of another, the interior of someone who, who we may not actually meet on the street. I'm curious about this.
4: Oh, first of all, literature is not supposed to do anything but be good at what it does. There is no uh, sort of um, codex to what you're supposed to learn from this, and it's not political or anything. He just cracked, cracks me up, the Buddhist, because this is a character who who thinks of himself as good and therefore wants to force... Goodness on the world. We see this all over the place in America and Denmark, you know, people with power who think they're good and who wants to sort of stuff goodness into the throats of everyone. Yeah, yeah, and we have them. They're all over the world, right? And and this is a hilarious kind of person. To to work on, he cracked me up. When I was writing that story, I had to go away from the computer several times just to laugh in the corner yeah. uh, of the living room because he's hilarious, uh, and we all know him. People come up and say, "Oh, I know. I know these people who want to do good. It's uh, they're dangerous, right?"
1: Yeah, but why Buddhism over other other religions?
4: Because Buddhism is like it's the softest of all religions but i would say that buddhism in the hands of a lutheran yeah. can be very dangerous because the lutheran is trained in another way of thinking you know mission to have a missionary position to you know, didn't say that did I say missionary position? You did say missionary position. <laughs> oh my god, that's okay. Yep. We we do,
1: we do we do uh, we do talk about more positions than missionary on this program. Nobody,
4: no, yeah. but they want to be m- a missionary. Yeah. They want to sort of you know turn people over to their faith. You no, know, that Buddhism in the Far East are not that interested in that. You know, they just let people deal with their with this uh, journey themselves. So therefore, Buddhism is an interesting thing to to deal into the hands of a of a loser who wants to do things to the world. Um because he basically he doesn't get it, yeah he he basically doesn't get it, so Buddhism is a a sort of uh disguise, like the silly car that he has is some sort of cover up, yeah, you know, so that he can ooze his way into places and and terrorize them
1: but I'm wondering, I mean you know,
4: you're right to point
1: out this type of uh character is common throughout the world. But is there any specific? Uh, I guess what what does Denmark bring to the kind of ideological lunatic? <laughs> you know what I mean. What's the Danish identity aspect of this? Out of curiosity,
4: I would say that Denmark is such a small nation. There are five point point six Danes yeah. in the world. You know, go to that's lower Manhattan or something like that. Yeah, there, it's like we're we're there is no one. We're tribal, yeah. and the, the strange thing about small nations is that like a dachshund, what do you call that? It's like yeah. we think we're So big. You know, we get so filled with ourselves. We love ourselves. And then we roam the world telling everyone how to do things.
1: What? Wait, wait, wait. I didn't hear this. I haven't had uh, Danish egotists knock on the door unless you're coming out as one.
4: No, but even in the diplomacy, well, I don't even think Denmark is the worst. But but Scandinavia has this social democratic, we will teach you how to be good people, right? Because we know... How we're supposed to do things, and our way, it's our way or the highway, you know. It's it, yeah. it, it, because and then that's the tribal thing that we sort of fall in love with ourselves.
1: I'm sure you've heard the American term mansplaining. It's danesplaining here. It's when someone gets in a kind of superior position and talks down to someone without actually listening to what they have to say. Exactly. Well, I I had no idea. I mean, you know. So, well, how how, is this? This is still a very prominent characteristic of Denmark. You would say this uh, talking down, this condescending. We're better than you. Or Mm, I think
4: when when I travel, I get pretty embarrassed about. Danes, and, and <laughs> it, uh, this aspect. I also love I would, my... I
1: would, I would say Americans are worse off on this than no, Danes. No, but they're baby. loud.
4: They're yeah. like, you know, that, that's they have a loudness to them that's different. Danes is just like a, a, almost a past, pastoral, we know better. Or Scandinavia, oh, yes. Scandinavia as such, yeah. has this, well, you know, we're good.
1: They're the ones who gently kind of enter a social situation and say, we know what's right for you. Is that is that something like that? or?
4: I, I think I heard an, an American uh president candidate uh who said that the worst thing about traveling all over the world in in the name of politics was that you could run into a swedish governor somewhere yeah. who would who would tilt his head and explain how he should live his life yes. and how he should be so this kind of you know,
1: but that presidential candidate who I won't name was uh, you know? a bit of a buffoon, just uh, to, to yeah. say the because least. Yeah, because you
4: know who it is. Yeah I, <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I, I know who it is. I don't want to remember. <laughs>
4: no, let's let's not mention the war. No,
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I'm curious about how the heron got to the New Yorker. I, I mean, that's a that's quite a coup. Uh, I mean, was who 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 got it that way? I, I'm curious.
4: Well, I didn't send it there. Yeah, I was I was. In Denmark, minding my own business, um, being anonymous and a little bit tired. And then one day I got an email from my uh, American editor who said, look, you got a a story. One of the stories is going to be in the New Yorker. And it's because my publisher sent it there. Uh And... Because I, all these stories were published in American magazines, yes, one by one by one, and I never contemplated sending a story to the New Yorker because I considered it complete waste of time. Why, why try to get a story through the doors of a place that is closed? Yeah. Oh, right. So it's my publisher that send it in. They say, "Look, we have these fifteen stories coming out. You want to see some of them?" And they liked it.
1: Who was the first big uh, American advocate you had to, for uh, gradual uh, domination of <laughs> the, the Norse stories and eventually the five novels?
4: What do you mean? Who, who was you, the
1: first person who, like, talked you up in America? Who were the early people?
4: That I, uh, that I knew?
1: Or that you knew or that were just saying, hey, uh, we, you got to publish her?
4: Um, well, my stories were pretty weird. I was at a pen reading in Copenhagen. And I met Rick Moody and Juno Diaz yeah. there and ended up being their tour guide on Christiania, which uh-huh. was interesting uh, because they had never been there before. And then I knew them for a while and they, my things weren't translated back then at all. So they, they were just friends. And then I went to a residency in Jutland where I met Fiona Marcel, who, who uh, at that point read my stories yeah. and um, she took them. With it without that's actually quite touching because Fiona uh, brought the stories home uh, to America and presented them to the woman who's now my American editor without me knowing it. I found out three years after the fact, which is quite touching. Yeah, so that's how it happened.
1: Sounds good. You told the New Yorker that Fredericksburg Gardens, the setting of the Mm heron, is the place where you can find hardcore happiness on a daily (laughs) basis. Uh, which is quite something, considering how Danes claim to be the happiest people on Earth, and apparently also the uh, the most superior people on Earth, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering, what's the Danish idea of happiness, and do you feel that uh, hardcore happiness is kind of one of these forces in Danish culture to be resisted through the course of fiction? Or...
4: Mm, well... Th- it's also a prestigious thing to say that you're happy in Denmark because people are killing themselves and running to psychiatrists all the time and popping pills, so I don't know what what that happiness is all about, but it's like if you're happy you're superior you're cool you're doing well, shut up right yeah so it's also I think a little bit of fraud. The other thing is that the that the social system in Denmark. Is so good. So it's actually... When I travel and I see how people struggle
3: yeah.
4: uh, on the bottom of society, I can tell that we are doing better than most. Yeah. Um, not good enough, but better than most. So I would say that when we're talking about that, I think Danes are, and, and people in Scandinavia, perhaps, perhaps happier because they don't have to struggle that much to survive. But the whole uh, hipster, I'm just so happy. uh, Lingua, I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, a commercial. It's like, I think they do this They ask people every year, are you happy? And and Denmark wins it all the time And I think now they just want to win it all the time So when they get asked, oh yes, I'm happy Because, yeah. you know Well, we it's want publicity
1: if you're the happiest nation on earth We don't want to lose that yeah, competition, yeah, right? Exactly. Uh, and you don't have that many people to spread the word around To just say, hey, just, just tell them you're happy We <laughs> yeah. all
4: know each other So, you know, if Peter doesn't say that he's happy We're going to make sure that he says it next time, right? Yeah. Because it's like, we all know each other
1: so, so you had mentioned like you were here in New York uh, eight years ago, and a lot of these stories do, in fact, uh, take place in New York. Two no? of them. Two of them. Two yeah. of them. Aside from, of course, the West Virginia. <laughs> yeah, oh, <laughs> that's right. There's yeah, that's that. Uh, but I wonder, you know, why is uh, New York sort of the place that uh, reveals America? And uh, you know, why not? Uh, are there other countries that you've perhaps explored in the novels, or, or how does how does your uh, viewpoint work and collide with other nations and what tension does that bring
4: well i remember when i was here in new york eight years ago i was here a summer and um all the new yorkers i met they would say well this is not america honey and then they would point to the west and they would say that's america so so i i feel i still still need to explore america and and get to know what america is like because new york and is is kind of a world in itself You've it's only like, been
1: to New York basically yes,
4: I've only yeah. been to new york so so I can't say that much about what the rest of the nation is like, uh, but I truly want to experience it and New York is apparently according to New yorkers like an island in the in the nation yeah, yeah it is
1: it is it is to a large degree yeah. um but i I would also argue that uh, within New York, like any great city uh it it there are many new Yorks exactly and it's the exactly. New York you want to see, I mean, I suppose it's the same thing with Denmark too uh, I mean you know what is a city, what is a location what is you know uh <laughs> Fredericksburg gardens yeah. uh but the the gardens that you decide to see is is that safe to say exactly
3: yeah, exactly yeah.
4: yeah.
1: I wanted to talk about the big tomato because that's just such a goofy story. Uh, It's interesting because you have this very large tomato that is loathed as a unit of weight. Uh, You have these uh, affluent people. They, uh, They get this large tomato because it's over... The weight they wish to return it. Um, the tomato then goes on various other adventures where it is actually appreciated as a vegetable, um, and that's 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 fascinating to me because it gets into something in your stories that I, I think is quite quite intriguing uh there's the end of duckling which we were mentioning Mm -hmm. um in which an estimated oven temperature proves especially horrific and it got me thinking of for whatever reason the mismeasure of man by stephen j gould about how much of biological determinism has regrettably come about uh because of uh, uh efforts to measure things efforts to be specific about things efforts to use that measurement to try to you know uh you enforce unfortunate and regrettable and atavistic racist and sexist and mm-hmm. classist mm-hmm. Uh, views and all that. So I'm wondering, you know, uh, what what is it about the measurement uh, that you think reveals uh, the human impulse? Is it something that we're just going to inevitably have to embrace uh, by nature of being surrounded by rulers or whatnot? Or is it is it just one of those things that we, we again, are, are not really um, thinking about in terms of how uh, accuracy or, or specifics uh, affects Uh, sometimes uh, it creates a narrow range of of the Mm -hmm. world and all that.
4: Well, then the big tomato, the the tomato itself uh, is about classes colliding or classes meeting or worlds uh, being close up to worlds. Like these worlds hardly overlap.
1: It's a multicultural tomato.
4: Exactly. But also this story was true. When I was in New York eight years ago, uh, I had Danish friends tell me that they had a tomated, tomato delivered that was so huge that they didn't want to pay for it. And <laughs> and at the same time, I saw people struggling in the streets and thought, these things live side by side. Yeah. And it's an interesting notion that you have that the the bangs, that's these uh, tall Danes that don't want the tomato, uh, is called. Uh, and the the Mexicans in the story look at the tomato from they have a different viewpoint it's yeah. also ironic there's there's an albanian yes uh, the laundry bag guy exactly who, who who takes it into his hand as if it's the holy grail yeah and says because to him it means the promised land right look i'm in a place where tomatoes can get this big but is he actually getting a bite of it yeah not really
1: but he's happy holding it. Yeah. he seems happy holding yeah, it, like maybe, a child. <laughs> maybe you know, well, or, or a flower baby or whatnot. Yeah. I'm not sure if they have yeah. that in, uh, in in Denmark. But
4: <laughs> but I must say I haven't really thought about how I look upon the measuring. But you're true. There is a a couple of to- stories that that sort of investigate that. Yeah. Without me being aware of it, actually.
1: But I, I mean, how aware are you of the way that? either an object or a person or a type of situation uh, is looked at from several angles. I mean, I'll mention also the story Nat Newsom It starts off with this man who is opening the McDonald's door, trying to collect enough change to get a Happy Meal. Uh, we then um, learn that it's being told by one Professor Jack Sawyer who... Uh, who claims to also have this dissertation named Jack Sawyer's Laws of Strategy. <laughs> um, and and then there's also this guy in the story who has the fake badge in front of the New York uh, Public Library. Um, and there's one sentence of the story I'd like to read that may actually yeah. get us unpacking this, and, and it's it's this. The reality of the matter was that his handicap prevented him from truly making a difference, but at least he showed himself to be willing. Well, since everybody in this story is a hustler of some sort. Is it safe to say that hustling is kind of a, a handicap that shows us willing to live without truly making a difference? Does it relate to something similar to the tomato or or, or what?
4: I don't know. I don't see uh, Nat Newsom as a hustler. He's, he's like a, a, a pretty innocent dude. Hmm. Uh, innocence is his handicap, I would say. But it's a handicap that he chooses to have because he would rather be innocent than... Then lose that kind of nativity. Um, I'm not sure how to answer the question. Um, I just—I I don't think I think that much about what I'm doing. I, I'm just kind of doing it, and it's very interesting to talk to you because your position is the reader's position, sure. and and this. In- incredible richness that comes from that, right? It's like you strike a note in a story and all these ideas are presented to the reader and sometimes you're directing the reader and sometimes this just happens uh, without the writer actually Making a strategy about it. Yeah. I do things that are playful. I, I love the entire idea of a man who is completely into strategies, which is about controlling the world, to have power over the world, to have power over other people, Um meet a completely loose dude with no fingers, yeah. which is like ha- not having the the basic thing you need to sort of hook up to other people right not have a
1: grip on the (laughs) world not have
4: a grip of anything like being smooth as a a piece of soap is like complete opposites and um i'm not too keen on people who are very into strategies i always back away from people who 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 think they can control the world through strategies yeah they give me the creeps to be frank
1: (laughs) so we're not going to find you uh At a game of risk, anytime soon, you know. (laughs) No,
4: because I would lose it. I would lose this. I have no sense of strategy.
1: Yeah. Uh, I I wanted to also ask you about one other thing I noticed. Uh, Most or many of your characters tend to flock to television the internet and pictures in an attempt to sort of grapple with humanity. Yeah, modern,
4: modern mankind, Yes, right? Yes, yeah.
1: exactly. Uh, you have Louise watching the TV in Do You Know Jesse? Mm-hmm. You have the odd fixation on the 224,000 Google hits of what Eileen Wuornos', Eileen Wuornos is, is, yeah. uh, biological son is going to see, and that's in Female Killers. Um, how would you say human interpretation uh, is enslaved by these representations? What makes fiction, which is itself a representation of reality, any different or perhaps more honest And I suppose creating currents of understanding
4: I think for for one thing Is that when when you're surfing the internet You target what you want to see Or learn something about Or or watch Uh, The same with your uh, iPhones And all this When you open a book You're presented with what's in the book And sometimes it will mirror you And sometimes it will present something to you That is completely new to you I think the in The knowledge you get from surfing on the internet and all this will do a lot of good for you, but it will also make the Western world more and more stupid because we're not we're not uh actually using our brains in the right way i think um so literature is a way of backing into the corner, sitting down, and staying with uh topics voices, characters. Themes that might not be familiar to you and might not be what you want, but will make your brain grow.
1: Yeah, I think well, that's true. But but we have had competing representations of reality before. I mean, TV came before mm-hmm. the internet. Mm-hmm. I mean, you. It
4: has the also mo- movies
1: had the same rap too in the, in yeah. the silent film days and all that. So I mean, you know, I mean, what what makes um, fiction a, a more authentic representation of reality?
4: I don't know if it's more authentic, but I think it's closer to how we look inside our heads. I mean, TV and movies have also made their way into literature. I, sure. I read books that have a completely manuscript. It's like you could just film this tomorrow. It's a storyboard more than it's literary fiction, I would say. Yeah. But, but we don't live our lives like that. That's not how people live. There's no, there's no structure to my life. There's, I, there's no plot. Yeah, It's just like going along and then the stuff happens. And we have inner emotions and outer things going on at the same time and we're navigating in that and trying to relate to other people at the same time, which is much more complex and has nothing to do with the storyboard, right? Yeah. And literature tried to grasp it. Literature tried to, I think I said it in the, the interview in The Atlantic, literature is poured out human experience that we try to sort of capture in a form yeah so therefore i think li- literature's strength is is that it mirrors us the way we are
1: yeah right so it's it, the the mirror and how the consciousness is is displayed in that mirror is the more important uh Concern and the more meaningful, I suppose, uh, takeaway that one gets from from reading fiction.
4: I have great hope for for literary fiction because we live. People get stressed out by their iPhones and their and the way that we are constantly sapping from one topic to the other. And reading a book um, calms you down, even though even when you're reading shocking things, you're at least you're staying in that place, right? Which is uh, sort of a retreat of the mind.
1: I, I wanted to also ask uh, about a very peculiar phrase that is at the very beginning of flight. Uh, I, it's this odd metaphor that Alan relates to the narrator of the relationship that they have. He says that she's like the castles he used to build out of straw bales when he was a boy. Inside the castle was a den in which to eat cookies and drink fruit juice while listening to the rumble of the combine in the next field. Um, And I'm wondering if this is a particular Danish metaphor that uh, can't quite be articulated in English or whether the odd phrasing of a castle as a den in which to eat cookies was more or less like that in the original Danish. So this, this leads me to questions of translation, which I want to get into as well. But uh, yeah.
4: yeah, there was a great translator for this book, Martin Aitken, and yes. the, the metaphor is the same in the Danish uh, version. Um, it's pretty simple. That's what we did when we were kids in Western Jutland and Denmark. We would build these castles and we would take cookies and, and lemonade in there. So the sensibility and i think i think it's such a sensual metaphor but that's because i remember what it's like sitting inside those castles yeah it was like no one could get you there it was like you were completely cooped up and hidden away from everything and then this and then this the, the combine like this really dangerous thing right outside yeah it's just. I never thought about this as being a complicated metaphor because it's so physical to me. I, I think I think
1: what it is is I got stuck on the the phrase a den in which to eat cookies. I uh, like you know not like uh, a den where I ate cookies. A den in which that is the purpose of this den is to eat cookies. It is and so as it a result, was. yeah, yeah. And, and that to me, like, it, whoa well, it's like an actual house and no other cookie. No, nothing else is eaten here or done here except eating cookies. That's no. why I was curious about that. Was, that. We, we
4: build these things and we yeah. would uh, go there. Sometimes we would bring a kitten or something, you huh. know. But that was, when it was a harvest time, That we loved to do that.
1: What do you think the biggest thing that Americans and other uh, nations get wrong about Denmark, out of curiosity?
4: That we're happy. <laughs> <laughs> no. well you've and been smiling <laughs> for a good chunk of this conversation <laughs> no uh, I think I'm actually you know I think Danes have these prejudice prejudice about Americans that they don't know anything about Danes but I think for instance yesterday I had a reading at the Center for Fiction yeah. and there was a, with A.M. Holmes and there was a big crowd Yeah. and I knew a lot about Scandinavian literature so, I don't think. Well, it's, of course, there's the whole Hans Christian Andersen thing and sure. the Ugly Duckling thing and the Little Mermaid uh, thing and Wonderful Copenhagen. Wait, thing. wait,
1: the Danes did that? I thought that was Disney.
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hans Christian Andersen did that. Oh, I love that story, by wow, the way. That, but I'm living <laughs> so much here. <laughs> but you know, but that's like like the superficial knowledge of yeah. of, of Denmark. Then there's also. I think Americans love Danish design, Yeah. and uh, they like the subtleness of um, our work. Uh, that we're um, these stories are also very subtle. It's not it's not you know shouting from the rooftops. Yeah. It's like telling everything in sort of a silent and an aesthetic way. And I think Americans like that also. Uh, the aesthetics of where I come from, um, because it's that's. Very much in the core of what we do, the the furniture and the, the simplicity of things and yeah. stuff like that.
1: What are like five Danish writers that perhaps have not been translated here that need to be translated? Aside from your, your novels, of course.
4: <laughs> well, first of all, one of them is on the brink of being translated is a very young writer, 18 years old, Yahya, Yahya, Yahya Hassan. Sorry, Yahya Hassan. Um, just sold 100,000 copies of a poetry collection that completely baffled Denmarkism. He's a, wow. an incredible voice. Hope he gets here one day. Uh, there are a lot of, um, um, oh, it's hard to just mention five. I don't want to advocate somebody over others, but there is a lot of good, good writing. Let's
1: take the numerical value out of this (laughs) yeah
4: but there's a there's a lot of good good writing going on in denmark there's also a lot of crime fiction writing so um but but they'll get here i would say that i would love to see some of the the writers that write thinner books like this uh who has this sort of uh aesthetic approach to to literary fiction there are numbers of those in denmark well,
1: that seems a good place to end. Dornay, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to share. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Okay. You're the
0: best around. Nothing's going to ever keep you down. You're the best around.